0: Luke chapter 4, and I want to draw your attention to verses 40 and 41. Luke 4, verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. So today, I'm told that you can go to Israel and visit Kephar Naum. That's the name of the town, Kephar Naum. and There's a Franciscan monastery there, in case you were interested. And there's a Greek Orthodox church there as well, in case you wanted to go there. And in Kepharnaum, that's where ancient Capernaum once stood. You can hear the similarity in the words, the name. And apparently... If you went there today, you could see the ruins of the temple in which Jesus taught and the house in which Peter lived. I don't know how true that is. But we do know that uh, Capernaum in our Lord's day was the center of his ministry. We know that uh, from the passage that there was a Sabbath day in which the Lord Jesus was in Capernaum And he spoke in the synagogue and he taught them. And we know that he also delivered a demon-possessed man on that same Sabbath day in the synagogue. And then we know that after the synagogue service, they went to Peter's house. Peter lived in Capernaum and they went to Peter's house, presumably for lunch. And uh, before lunch, uh, Peter's mother-in-law was very sick. And then before lunch, the Lord Jesus miraculously healed Peter's mother-in-law, and then she rose from a dangerous fever to serve the Lord Jesus and others who were there, again, as I say, presumably for lunch. And then we know that the day progressed, and as the sun began to set, people from all over Capernaum, town with a population of about 1,500. People from all over Capernaum uh, began to gather. They, they came. People who were in need came and gathered. Uh, troubled people came and distressed people. People who, because of phil- physical ailments, were at the end of their rope. And they came, they came from all over Capernaum uh, to Peter's house because they knew that at Peter's house, Uh, Jesus was there. And from all over the town, they struggled to find their way to Peter's house because they came seeking Jesus. And as we're going to sing later, at even, ere the sun was set, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. Oh, in what diverse pains they met. Oh, with what joy they went away. So in your mind, you can picture two things. You can picture the sick. At even, ere the sun was set, Well, the sick, O Lord, around thee lay. And then you can also picture the Savior. That hymn goes on to say, O oh, Savior Christ, our woes dispel. They came to him with that prayer. O oh, Savior Christ, Our woes dispel. And so we have the sick and we have the Savior in the sunset in Capernaum. Well, let's think about the sick for for a moment. And I think when we look at the sick of Capernaum, we see something of the state of the world. The sick of Capernaum give us a glimpse of the state of the world. The sick of Capernaum give us... uh, a bit of a microcosm of the state of the world, the sick of Capernaum. I don't know if every sick person in Capernaum was there, but they seem to have been there. You notice verse 40 says, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, all kinds of diseases, brought them to him. And so anyone who had anyone, who was in any way sick, brought those sick people to Jesus. So everybody came. All the sick people at various stages of illness with all kinds of diseases and all kinds of physical ailments and problems were brought to Jesus. Everybody who had a problem seemed to be there on that night. One commentator says suffering masses gathered at Peter's door as the western glow of the receding sun passed the horizon. Every manner of disease was there. Tuberculosis, raging fevers, cancer, degenerative diseases, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the deaf, some had to be carried, and many moaned in their distresses, and so they were all there, and if this had been a hospital, then all the beds would have been filled, and you would have seen people uh, in, in the hallways, waiting for a place to lie and a place to rest and a place to be treated. And, and the sick would have been, you know, the ambulances would have been rerouted to other hospitals because everybody was there looking for Jesus. Everybody was there to be, to be treated, to be helped, and to be healed by the Lord Jesus. And when you read through Luke, you find that uh, this is often the case. Luke says a lot about crowds. People were always crowding to come and see Jesus, crowding to seek him out, coming for healing and for teaching, for ministry to the body and ministry to the soul. Luke 5.15, great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Luke 8.45, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. Luke 9.11 says, when the crowds learned it, that he had withdrawn, uh, when they learned it, they followed him and, they, and he welcomed them. Luke 11.29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to teach them. And so you see again and again, they crowd him out, they come to him, they stream to him, they want their bodies healed and they want their souls ministered to. Luke 14.25 now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and taught them. And so the crowds come to him tonight, and they come for healing. And in the sunset and in the twilight, they come and they seek out the Lord Jesus. Now, these are sin sick people. These are sin weary people. These are sin troubled people, and sin and all the suffering that it brings into the world. It's everywhere. And we know that the fundamental human problem is sin, and the result of that sin is all kinds of sickness and suffering. And it's not a wonder, then, that when Jesus is in Capernaum, people come rushing to him. It's not a wonder, then, that when the miracle worker, when the healer, when the great new teacher, when the one who speaks like no one else speaks, when the one who teaches with authority, unlike all the others. When he comes, when he's in town, well, then they begin to gather because this is a wicked world. It's a wicked world in which they lived. God said in Genesis 6, 5, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so when people begin to hear, we think this is the Messiah, we think this is the promised one. We think this is the one God is sending to help us. Well, no wonder they come and they gather. Well, no wonder they come and they seek him out. They're looking for help. They know this is, a, this is a wicked world. We need someone to help us. And, you know, maybe this is him. And this is a groaning world. You know, Romans eight twenty two says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, the created order groans, and we, who are the, uh, the sentient creatures in this creation. Now we groan as well. We understand that groaning because, well, we experience the kind of sickness all these people experienced. Now they must have been groaning themselves as they come to seek help from Jesus. And so these are the, the sick of Capernaum. You know, in their distress and in their, perhaps, despair, in their desperation, certainly, they come running and they come limping and uh, perhaps some come crawling and and some are being carried. And they're all crying to the Lord Jesus for help. The sick of Capernaum. But now we think about the state of the world. Because as I said earlier, it seems to me that that Capernaum is a microcosm of the world. It's a microcosm of the world and the wicked and the groaning Capernaum in which you find the sin sick and troubled and desperate people looking for help. Well, that's the world in which we live. We recognize Capernaum. We understand the scene. We're familiar with this kind of situation. We're all so familiar with this kind of scene because we see it in the world in which we live. We're part of that scene. We're part of this experience. This is a small picture. This is a glimpse of the world in which we live. We know the world in which we live is a troubled world. We know it's a wicked world. You read the Old Testament and you read about people who sacrificed their children to Moloch. I mean, they do that. They, they put their children on altars to gratify the wicked desires of a God they've made up. How twisted is that? That's the kind of world in which we live. Perhaps you've heard of a woman named Mary Slessor. She was a, a Scottish Presbyterian missionary to Nigeria in the late 1800s. And when she was there, she discovered something wicked that people were doing. They were killing twin babies. What the tribe's people thought was that if twins were born, then clearly the father is some kind of wicked individual, some kind of demon-possessed individual. And so they knew that as a result of that, One of the twins was also evil. They didn't know which one, but they knew that since clearly the father was possessed, since he had twins, one of the twins clearly was wicked and evil and possessed. And that twin had to be killed. But they didn't know which one, so they killed them both. And this was the practice. And Mary Slessor devoted much of her life to ending that practice, to exposing the wickedness of it, and bringing it to to an end. By the way, that's just one of a multitude of examples of the beneficial impact that the Christian church has had on the world throughout its history. Don't believe anybody who tells you that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has had a negative impact upon the world and that all history declares that. That's an absolute lie. They're speaking out of ignorance. The church has had a wonderful effect, a benevolent and beneficent effect on the world ever since the beginning. Uh, what I'm saying, though, is that this is a wicked world. They kill babies in Nigeria at the turn of the century. But you don't have to go far away from here, either ge- geographically or chronologically, to think about babies being killed. You just have to go to a hospital in Ontario to go and find that even there they rip babies apart and bring their lives to an end for their own wicked purposes, for their own selfish reasons. This is a wicked world. And the horrible thing about this wickedness is that it's, it's normal. What I mean by that is that this is what you expect from fallen humanity. You know, you can read about a man by the name of Rudolf Huss. He was the commandant of Auschwitz. And when they uh, had him on trial, they had psychiatrists talk to him. And this is one of the things he said. He said, I am completely normal. Now, remember, this is a man who sent thousands upon thousands to the gas chambers. Day by day. But he says, I'm completely normal. Even while I was carrying out the task of the extermination, I led a normal family life. And he says, I want people to know that I have a heart. And when they examined other Nazi war criminals, especially a man like Eichmann, they said, said, the terrifying thing about these people is that they're not monsters. They don't have horns on their head. They're frighteningly normal. They're just like us in so many ways. So what I'm saying is that the terrifying thing about this wicked world in which we live is that this is that which flows from the fallen human hearts. There's a wicked world. And this is a groaning world. You see, what I'm saying is that this Capernaum scene is a microcosm. It's a reminder to us that This is what this world is like. Sometimes you look around at the beauty of the creation and the affluence that we enjoy, and you think, well, this is a pretty good world. But it's a a sin-sick veil of tears. And so we need to be reminded it's a wicked world. It's a groaning world. Paul says in Romans 5, sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is a groaning, troubled, suffering, depraved, war-torn, violent world in which we live. It's full of suffering. You go to the hospitals and you walk around. You go to nursing homes and you see people near the end of of their lives, and it's not a pretty sight. And you go to institutions for the criminally insane. I don't know if there's a more terrifying phrase than that. An institution for the criminally insane, where frightening people are locked away, and they don't even know what's wrong with them, and they're trying to help them and treat them. This is the world in which we live. And then you look at the corrupt people all around. They're not in institutions. They're running businesses. They're in government. And they're full of corruption. And then you look at broken families. And you look at the violence all around us. And you look, oh, you consider the slaughter of unborn babies. You turn your eyes to the the Holocaust and the genocides and... You didn't even know all the genocides that happened in the 20th century. Every now and then, I discover a genocide I didn't know anything about. And I love history. Have you heard of the Armenian genocide? Yeah, that's one of the lesser-known ones. Have you heard of Nanking, where they killed 300,000 people in the 1930s? In about, what, three or four weeks? This is the world in which we live. Have you heard about the Great Terror in the 30s in Russia? Where the Russian authorities killed 700, 800,000 people in the space of about two years? It's the world in which we live. And then you think of the, the ongoing campaign, the relentless campaign of academics and intellectuals and authors against Christ and against God in our day. It's been ramped up in recent years. So they're not killing people, but they're helping to send them to hell. And then they rage against God, because then when something happens uh, where people are killed, well, then they rage against God. A man named David Bentley Hart wrote these words in the Wall Street Journal after the tsunami of 2004. He says, when confronted by the sheer savage immensity of worldly suffering, When we see the entire littoral rim of the Indian Ocean strewn with tens of thousands of corpses, a third of them children, no Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all this mysteriously serves God's ends. Well, Oh, they're full of sin and enduring the suffering as a result and yet they rage against God. And how do we respond? What, what lessons can we draw from this? This is the sick. Well, first of all, there's humility. It's humility. Remember what Nathan said to David? You know, David rose up in indignation against this man. And Nathan says, you're the man. You're the man. How do you respond to the sick of Capernaum and the state of the world? The sin-sick world, these desperately troubled people. You know, they're at the heart of it all they're they're sinful and wicked and as a result they suffer immensely you can't just stop at the suffering the root of all suffering is sin and so sin is at the heart sins at the foundation wickedness and corruption rebellion against god animosity towards him hatred of him no fear of god for him and that's at the root Of all the suffering, there's a reason the sick had to flee to Jesus in Capernaum. It's because this is a fallen world. There's a reason there's so much pain and agony in the world. It's because at the heart, we're all enemies of God. And so how do we respond to this? Well, we respond humbly, you know, because we're part of it. We're not separate from them. We're not distinct from them. We're not in some kind of holy huddle. Where we're distinct from them, no, we're part of them. We were part of them in every sense. Now, thank God we've been delivered. But that's how we were born. That's where we lived. That's what we were like. Those were our people. And it's humbling. It's humbling. And then you, you realize, you know, that these people and maybe this is what we were like as well. They say things like this, despite their wickedness and all the consequent suffering as a result. They say stuff like this, out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I've not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am master of my fate. I am captain of my soul. And we partook of that kind of pride and arrogance in our pre-converted state. This is what you and I were like. By nature, we're no better than them. With all the suffering, they shake their fist at God. And once so did we. It should humble us to know where we've come from. But then, compassion. How do you respond to this, the sin-sick people of Capernaum and the sad state of the world in which we live? Compassion. What's the overwhelming emotion that grips you when you read about these people? I think if you read this that evokes compassion probably. What's the overwhelming emotion when you look at the world today? Is it compassion? Matthew 9:36 When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus looks at these people. Compassion. What did Jonah think when he looked at Nineveh? Oh, maybe, you know, compassion towards the widows in in Israel, but, but not Nineveh. I hate Nineveh. Because Nineveh, you see, is wicked. Yeah, Nineveh, they kill people like us. And Nineveh, they strip the skin off people. And they hang them up publicly to be, have their bodies desecrated. There are wicked people, the people of Nineveh. So no, no compassion for Nineveh. And so God says, go and preach to them. No, I, I think not. And I think I'll go this way. But when God looks at Nineveh, you can read this in chapter 4 of Jonah. When God looks at Nineveh, he says, should I not feel compassion for them? So God can look at Nineveh and feel compassion. Jonah's supposed to look at Nineveh and feel compassion. He says, oh, they're too wicked. God says, who are you to say that? I mean, who are you? So when Jesus looks at Jerusalem, and remember, he describes Jerusalem as Jerusalem that kills the prophets. This isn't Jerusalem, oh, heavenly Jerusalem. This is where the saints live. No, this is, oh, Jerusalem. Now, who are you? Well, you... Kill the prophets. I, I send prophets to you all the time. I send people to tell you my will. I send people to tell you about my Messiah, and you kill them. And Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how I've wanted to gather you under my wings." Compassion. So when you look at Toronto and all the vile filth that goes on there, When you look at the great cities of our day, do you look at them like Jonah looked at Nineveh? When you look at the vile people and the wicked people and the wicked rulers of our day, do you look at them the way Jonah looked at the wicked leaders and kings and authorities in Nineveh? And the corrupt religious leaders of Jerusalem? Do we look at them with compassion, the people of our day? I mean, the wicked people of our day, the vile people, the people who are doing terrible things. But do we have the heart of God? You see, that's the question. Do we have the compassion of Jesus? I mean, not everybody that came to him in Capernaum was lily white. I mean, they were suffering, but, you know, they're choice people. I suspect not. We need to have the compassion of the Lord Jesus. So the sick of Capernaum, now uh, the Savior, the Savior. In the gospel here, the Lord Jesus walks into Capernaum. He walks in like a colossus. He is presented to us by uh, Luke as uh, the great Savior of the world. Now he is the man of God's own choosing. That's what Luther said, the man of God's own choosing, sent to help this sin sick, troubled world. He is presented to us by Luke as the mighty one of Israel. He comes to conquer sin and to conquer Satan for anybody who's going to believe in his name. He's come to save a people, you see. He's come to start a new humanity. He's the second Adam. Ah, that first Adam, we know all about him, and we know the result of his actions and his decisions and his choice. And we know that sin comes into the world, and a world of suffering is the result. Now there's a second Adam, and his name is Jesus. And he's come to begin a new race and to be the head of a new humanity, and he's come to rescue the perishing of which we are a part and he goes into Capernaum and he does wonderful things in Capernaum, and that's but a token of what he's going to do in the world. And I want to show you something about this great Jesus. I want to tell you first that he's compassionate. He's compassionate. This is the thing we want to imitate, you and I. We want to be like him, we want to have his heart. In verse 40, you see that he laid his hands on them. Now, this isn't a momentary touch, the grammar indicates that he laid his hands on them. He, He placed his hands on them, and he kept his hands there. Now, the Lord Jesus didn't have to do this. We know from the rest of the Gospels that he didn't have to to touch people to heal them. He could stand over here, and he could heal you over there. He could be in this town, and, and you could be over there in the other town, and he could heal you. He's on his way there, and he could heal you from here. He doesn't have to actually touch. No, he chooses to touch. He chooses to not even just a glancing blow there, but just to to lay his hand on you. Have you you felt someone's hand on your shoulder or even on your arm while they whisper something encouraging to you? And you understand then the importance of a touch. In the last, the last 20 years or so, there's been lots of research about how important human touch is. A doctor by the name of McNichol says in a journal article, the need for human touch is one of our most basic primal needs. The Lord Jesus knows he doesn't have to touch to heal, but he knows we need touch to help us. So he heals them, but even as he touches them, he strengthens and encourages. You know, nobody touched lepers. In that day, you didn't want to be downwind from lepers. You you certainly wouldn't touch them. Nobody touches lepers. Nobody except Jesus. And in Matthew 8, 3, it says, he, he reached out his hand to touch the man. And so he he didn't just touch him, but he reached out his hand to touch him. All of this tells us that he's compassionate. He has deep feelings for his people. Now he's your savior. We were reminded this morning that he's your friend. That means that he's compassionate towards you tonight. Now, perhaps you've come here and you're full of troubles. I mean, I don't know your situation. We all, have, we all have troubles, and perhaps tonight you're just full of troubles. Perhaps tonight it's, you know, it's just weighing you down. It's, it's, it seems everywhere. It's not everywhere, but it feels that way to you. And, and you're just feeling overwhelmed. And, and I'm saying to you that the Lord Jesus is full of compassion to you he cares for you. He understands. Hebrews 4.15 says that he is not someone who is unable to sympathize. Like, that's trying to stress it as strongly as the language allows. He's not the kind of person that you think where he can't sympathize. Like, I'm trying to stress that to you, says the writer to the Hebrews. I'm telling you as clearly as I can. He's not that kind of person. He is not someone who is unable to sympathize with you. No, he's compassionate. That's the Lord Jesus. That's your savior. That's your friend. That's your elder brother. He cares deeply about you. He knows your suffering, the suffering that nobody else knows about. Maybe you feel there are times when you you can't express to somebody else uh, the heartache of your soul. You can talk to a bosom friend, but you can't put it into words. And you feel as if nobody, just nobody understands. And you feel this awful isolation that sufferers feel. And I'm saying to you, you're not alone. There's someone who understands, and there's someone who cares, and it's your friend, the Lord Jesus. He's compassionate. And he's personal or particular I'm not sure which is the better word to use he's personal or particular he deals with each of us as individuals we're not just a mass of sheep to him he knows our names and he ministers to each one of you in verse 40 i wonder if you notice that it says that he laid his hands on every one of them he laid his hands on each one Individually, as an individual, this was a particular ministry. This was a personal ministry that Jesus had in Capernaum. You think of of Peter's mother-in-law, which happened earlier in the day, but she's an example. I wondered why he put that there. Well, it seems to me there's this wonderful comparison and contrast. There's... Just this mass of humanity, and Jesus ministers to all of them. And earlier, he ministers to one particular woman. I mean, you could go to her house. You, you knew what her close relations were. You know, That's Peter's mother-in-law, do you know? And she could tell you years afterwards, she could tell you about what happened to her. This wasn't something that happened to someone else, you see. This was something that happened to her. And you could say, hello, Peter's mother-in-law. And, and what, what happened? And she could say, well, this is what happened to me. I was, it, was a, it was a Sabbath day. And I was sick. I was sick as a dog. I, I wasn't going to kill me, but I was very sick. This was a great fever. I felt like I was going to die. I wasn't going to die. I know that, but it felt awful. And then he was there. He was standing over me. I was lying down, and he was standing over me. And they explained to me who he was, perhaps, but he was standing over me. And then, just like that, I was okay. I wasn't gradually feeling better. I wasn't like the fever started to break and I started to, huh. No, just like that, it was over and I got up. And then I started to work. It wasn't if there was some some residual weakness. No, I was fine. It's like it hadn't happened. And I got up and I, I started to help and serve. And it was wonderful, and he did it for me. It's personal, you see, it's particular. And every one of you and I who are here Christians, we can say exactly the same kind of thing. He might not have healed your body, or maybe he did, but he certainly healed something in your soul. He certainly strengthened your heart. He certainly gave you fiber and and strength in, in your heart so that you might serve him. He's forgiven you, he's cleansed you, he's stirred you, he's given you holy desires and he sent you off to work to serve and to live for him. You see, this is all very particular. It's all very personal. He's your savior and then he's powerful. He's powerful. When you read this account, it's it's like a tsunami of power that's rushing through Capernaum, washing it clean of sickness. In verse thirty-eight, they're in Peter's house, and it says that they appeal to him on her behalf. So she's sick with a very great fever, and they ask him to help. And um, I saw someone who said, "What?" He said, Why did they ask him to help? And the answer was, Because he could. <laughs> he could help. Don't ask me. <laughs> I can't help you. But they said, Lord, can you help? Will you help? Please help? Because they knew, Well, he could. He'd done it everywhere else, he can do it here. He's got power, you see. He has all power. You, you read that uh, he has power over demons. He'd cast out a demon. He has power over diseases. He'd heal people of diseases. He knew about what happened in Mark 4. He has power over the created order. He said to the, to the sea, be still, be muzzled. He said the same thing to the sea that he said to the demons. He said to the demons, be quiet, be muzzled. And he said the same thing to the sea. Now, you just stop. Extraordinary. He has all power. You see, he doesn't need to diagnose. And, and Jesus doesn't refer. You know, some doctors will you know, say, well, that's a little out of my ballpark. Huh? You, I'm going to refer you to someone else. Jesus, he didn't refer anybody to anybody else. And um, he didn't consult. Oh, this, is, this is a confusing one. Let's get them all together, all the professionals. And let's consult about this and compare our wisdom. And doesn't do that. He's not baffled and he's not confused. And sometimes, you know, doctors roll the dice. They say, well, I don't know. I had a doctor say to me one time, and bless his heart, I just, he was just confused. He says, well, I think you should. He said, I don't know what the problem is. He said, try this. Some pill he gave me. He said, try this and come back and I hope you're feeling better. (laughs) Honestly, this is, and I, honestly, I walked away. I thought, man, thank you for being honest. You don't know what's going on here. And you're saying, I'll give it a try. I'll give it a try. Hope it works. Some, these, this is the best we got in this world, you know. Jesus is not like that. He heals them completely and immediately. Done. It's done. Incredible. He's powerful. That's why John Calvin, when his wife died, he said this. Oh, he says, may the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction. You see, if you have that kind of affliction, in this case, it's not a physical thing. In this case, it's, oh, it's heart sickness, isn't it? So who do you go to then? Who do you go to when there's something nobody in this world can help you with? Well, Calvin understands. He says, may the Lord Jesus support me under this heavy affliction, which would certainly have overcome me had not he who raises up the prostrate, like he did in Capernaum, strengthens the weak and refreshes the weary, Stretched forth his hand from heaven to me so the same jesus who stretched out his hand to touch the leper and stretched out his hand in capernaum to heal the sick he stretches out his hand from heaven now for you to help you with oh maybe it's heart sickness like john calvin sorrow that nothing in the world can alleviate Or whatever trouble it is, the Lord Jesus has the strength to help you tonight. The strength to enable you to rise up, keep going, and honor him in the midst. And then lastly, he's sufficient. He's sufficient. The Lord Jesus is sufficient for the hour. He's sufficient for the hour. You know, anybody who came to him on that day was healed. Whatever they came with was healed. Whatever trouble they brought, they received help. Whatever blessing they needed, they found in him. There was a time during the life of Adoniram Judson when he was, was at the end of his rope. It says, death seemed to be all about Adoniram, and for a period of months he was plunged Into despair and desperation, he would flee to the jungle and live the life of a hermit, he said. So for some time, he questioned himself and his calling and even his faith. He dug a grave in the jungle. and For days, he sat beside it, staring into it. This is a missionary. think missionaries don't struggle. (laughs) He dug his own grave, and he sat next to it for days and stared into it. On October 24th, 1829, the third anniversary of his wife's death, he would write, God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. However, God's power and love didn't fail him, and he would emerge from the valley of the shadow of death in the strength of his good shepherd, and later he would say, there is a love that never fails. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. So I'm saying to you, the Lord is, is sufficient. Hard to imagine days like that. I mean, I don't, I've, I've been depressed, but I've never dug my own grave. I I don't know what that's like to be in that kind of state. But even there, he says, the Lord didn't fail me and his love was sufficient. His grace was all I needed and saw me through it. Same for you, absolutely the same for you. There's nothing in this world you can't face. Nothing in this world. If God calls you to face it, you can face it. If God calls you to go through this, you can go through it. I'm not saying God will not give you anything you can't handle. I'm not saying that. That's nonsense. All the time, God gives you stuff you can't handle. That's the point. You can't handle it. But grace is sufficient. That's the point. He's sufficient. He provides healing. He provides hope. You know, we need hope, you and I. We need hope. And, and the Lord Jesus gives us hope. Uh, We read in Psalm 103, God forgives all our iniquities and heals all our diseases. We read in 1 Peter, by his wounds you have been healed. And so one day all our diseases will be healed, physical and spiritual, all healed. Revelation 22, 2 says, Also, on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And so Christ gives you hope for this world. He'll he'll carry you through, won't he? And then he says, at the end, it's all done. It's it's all over. It's, It's all finished. All the tears are gone. All the sorrow has been banished. All the sickness has been dealt with. And all suffering comes to an end. Every tear has been wiped from your eyes. And then it's happiness and glory for all eternity. And that's what Jesus provides for us. He provides hope. No matter how hard it is, there's hope. No matter how hard it is, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe a temporary deliverance just so you can get up and keep going. Or He may bring your life to an end so that you're in glory. Or he may give you grace and strength to press on and be a good soldier in the midst of the afflictions and then bring you to glory. But one way or the other, you're never without hope. That's the Lord Jesus. Imagine these people, they come streaming to Jerusalem. They're struggling with all their afflictions. They're weighed down. They're almost ready to give up and think, but there's there's somebody there in Capernaum and I'm going to pin my hopes on him. Well, that's what you've done. Pinned all your hopes on Jesus and he'll see you through. No questions about it. He's compassionate, personal, powerful, and sufficient. And you know, uh, if you're not a Christian, the Lord Jesus is the Savior, isn't he? Later on, John was... John the Baptist was a, having a moment of doubt, and Jesus said, tell John this. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor, the good news, preached to them. Go and tell John you saw that. And when John hears that, he thinks, oh, of course, of course. That's what they said Messiah would do. He's the savior of the world, of course. The doubts are banished and if you're not a christian that's the word of god to you tonight whether you're here in this room or whether you're listening or watching that's the word of god to you there's only one hope and one help for you that's the lord jesus and for those of us the many of us who are christians we well you know we keep coming to jesus we keep looking to him we keep fixing our eyes on him this jesus who does such wonderful things here in Capernaum, has done wonderful things in the world. He's done wonderful things for you, hasn't he? Now you keep looking to him and you keep running to him. You keep lifting your eyes and fixing your attention on him. And he'll see you through. He'll carry you through. He'll bring you through all the difficult days and enable you to cross all the rough terrain of this world and then bring you to glory. We'll be all right. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how we praise you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior, a wonderful Savior he is. Help us to love him and help us to trust him. We ask in his name,